Um, we are in 1 Peter. We are reading through chapter 4 and verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Um, we are, it is the final approach. We will land this plane, Lord willing, next week, chapter 5. Okay? Um, one more week on suffering. <laughs> you might say, we're suffering through this. But I'm telling you, this is so important because life is not suffering free, is it? And Peter's got more to say because we need to hear it. Remember, he is writing to Christians in the region of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. So it's a, it's a group of cities, a region, if you will. And he's writing this letter to them in a time where the intense persecution hasn't even started yet. Yet, he sees the need for the letter. The Holy Spirit is doing this, I think, to prepare them for what is to come. I see parallels in our nation today. I feel like we think we're suffering, and we need this, and I'm going... I think like then, the more is coming, more intense, more longer. And Jesus told us this. I'm not being prophetic. Jesus said that the birth pangs will increase in frequency and intensity. They're going to get closer together, and they're going to get more and more intense. So really, we shouldn't be surprised, which is actually the first point of the message today, but I'm not there yet. But there's going to be two don'ts and a, and a couple of do's. So do's and don'ts are a part of it, but he's encouraging them to do, them, do what is going to lead them to life. So um, I, I actually have something I don't like to read to you guys, but I actually have something I, I, I want to read because I want to get... It's, it's a quote. It's a long quote. And um, it's by a guy named... Uh, uh, what's it? Matheson. And Matheson is, uh, this is 1840s, okay? And he is, um, he's in Scotland, Glasgow, Scotland in 1840s, all right? And he's born with very poor eyesight. And um, as he gets, uh, as he ages as a teenager, it actually gets worse, his vision. And George Matheson, okay? And he's blind by age 18. Teenagers, can you imagine being blind in this world? Not having a real job yet? Not having found your future love yet? And you're thinking, I'm blind, what, this, is, this is really terrible. And he's a believer, okay? So what kind of attitude would he have? We talked about that last week. How do we live in light of the end? And we said that we arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ, and we talked about that in detail. So this is part two of that message. And this is what he wrote. And I don't know if he was 18 when he wrote this, but man, all right, so this is what he wrote. I'm making sure I'm starting in the right place here. Okay, there's, sorry. There is a time coming in which your glory shall consist of the very thing which now constitutes your pain. I'm going to read that sentence again. There is a time coming in which your glory shall consist in the very thing which now constitutes your pain. Nothing could be more sad to Jacob, talking about Jacob in the Old Testament, than the ground on which he was lying, a stone for his pillow. It was the hour of his poverty. It was the season of his night. It was the seeming absence of his God. The Lord was in the place, and he knew it not. Awakened from his sleep, he found that the day of his trial was the dawn of his triumph. 
ask the great ones of the past what has been the best spot of their prosperity, and they will say, quote, it was the cold ground on which I was lying, unquote. Ask Abraham, and he will point to the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Ask Joseph, and he will direct you to his dungeon. Ask Moses, and he will date his fortune from the danger in the Nile. Ask Ruth, she will bid you build her monument in the field of her toil. Ask David, and he will tell you that his songs came in the night. Ask Job, and he will remind you that God answered him out of the whirlwind. Ask Peter, he will extol his submersion in the sea. Ask John, and he will give the path to Patmos. Ask Paul, and he will attribute his inspiration to the light which struck him blind. Ask Ask him whence has come his rule over the world. He will answer ground on which I was lying. Gethsemane ground. Receive my scepter there, unquote. I expected him to say the tomb. But the Gethsemane ground, the place where he prayed, not my will, but yours be done, when he asked, if there's any other way to do this salvation thing, can we do without the cross? And God persisted. That's where the decision was made, and that's where the scepter was received. Because then it was just to follow it, follow it out and play it out. Some of you are hurting. You're suffering. And it doesn't feel like it's going to lead to any kind of victory. And Peter is saying... It does. It leads to glory. Okay? And I know that that takes faith to believe because it certainly doesn't make sense in our heads. It isn't what we see around us unless it's the exception. So um, I got to believe that today is, is um, super important for somebody. So this part feels like a new letter almost. The last verse of last week, verse 11 was like a doxology, right? To him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Sounds like he's done with the letter. And then verse 12 sounds like the beginning of another letter. Dear friends, but the flow matches, and that's why your translators have it still in the letter, because they are convinced that this goes together. And so we pick it up in verse 12. Peter is writing, and he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you. Don't be surprised. That has come on you to test you. Now, Peter's reminding us, he's already said this, one of the reasons that suffering comes is to test us, to test, to test what? To test the, the, the genuineness of our faith. Is it really? Do we really trust God? This is the test, right? Because it's, it's one thing to trust God when everything's going well. It's another thing to trust God when it's not. To test you as though something strange were happening to you. So this is the first point, if you're taking notes, point number one, don't be surprised if you're suffering. Don't be surprised. Instead, rejoice. Now, we saw that in some of the, voice, uh, some of the verses that uh, were read earlier. Um, I'm going to go back to those briefly because they're worth repeating. Acts chapter 5. Verse 41, 
And no, I don't. I didn't bookmark them. But yeah, I did. At least this one. Oh, this is Luke. This is the other one. Luke nine twenty six. Sorry, Booth. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. This is for later. That's why I had it marked there. Okay. So, um, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you. That's the second point, a little early. Don't be ashamed. So, don't be surprised at your suffering. Don't be ashamed of your suffering is point two. Okay? Um, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them if you're, when, when he comes in his glory. Okay, Acts 51, Acts 5, 41. Luke writes here also, the apostles left the Sanhedrin, that's the, the ruling Jewish council that was telling them to be quiet and stop talking about Jesus. They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, the name Jesus, the name, the way, the name Christian, however you want to say it. And then they doubled down day after day in the temple courts from house to house. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They weren't, they didn't allow their suffering to prevent them from doing what he called them to do. Okay, so um, that's through verse 12, verse 13. But instead of being surprised at the suffering as if something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. Verse 13. Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Sorry, I have to get a tissue here. So I told a story at the end of the service last week that I'm going to retell because it captures this moment. And when he's talking about, um, when he talks about participating in the sufferings of Christ. What does that feel like? What does that look like? And this is where glory and suffering mingle, okay? They're related, okay? God, think about the ultimate. Jesus suffered the ultimate. He lowered, he humbled himself, and then it, and God lifted him up and exalted him at the highest place in the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God, Philippians 2. So the story is... Um, uh, there used to be a member of our church uh, named Barney Reeves, and Barney was uh, a retired Air Force sergeant and uh, gruff on the outside but tenderhearted, okay? And he, was, he loved the Word of God. He, he always talked about, he, he always called it the Holy Bible, which is what it is, but he would always say the Holy Bible like that or God's Word. Anyway, he was suffering um, from uh, intestinal cancer, I believe it was, for a long time. So one day I'm in the hospital with him and he's sitting in, upright in the bed um, and because I can just see this like it was yesterday and it's just him and I and he starts to, tears just start to roll down his cheeks and he says, he's been here with me in the room. It's like Jesus has been right here in the room this week. I can't explain it. He says, I've never experienced it. <laughs> but his tears are tears of joy. He's like, I don't understand, but this suffering, as hard as it's been, he's been here with me. And he's just in awe. And you can tell the glory of the Lord has been in that room with him. Because he's just shining. He's got the tears, but he's shining. He is like, I tasted heaven this week. Okay? Now, that's the relationship I want you to feel and, and, to, and to think through, is that 
He knows what you're going through. He is omniscient, which means all-knowing. He knows everything you've ever thought and remembers it. He knows everything you're going to think and you haven't even gotten there yet. For every person who's ever lived, he captures your tears and has a bottle with your tears in them. He knows. Okay? And so when, when, Paul, when Peter writes, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice. Barney rejoiced in the midst of his suffering because he knew that because of that suffering, he had an intimate interaction with God that he had never had before. Okay? And that's just a taste of what's to come forever on increasing every day. Wow. That should blow our minds. You should go, I can't comprehend that. And because I can't, and, and it's too far beyond. And yet it should encourage us. It should it should give us a reason to at least want to believe, even if we don't believe yet. And be like, gosh, I I don't know that that's true. I'm not, I don't believe that that's true, but I want it to be true. That's a good desire, and that's God stirring you. That's God opening your eyes and opening your ears and saying, I'm talking to you, whoever you is. All right, he continues, and he says, if you are insulted, okay, so remember, these are folks that are dealing with persecution. They're suffering. Now, most of their suffering is coming because they are being Christians publicly. In other words, they're not hiding their faith. All right, and, and unlike in America, which though this is changing, in that day, you were in an extreme minority in an extreme minority. Jews were a minority in the kingdom of Rome, the empire, the Roman empire, and Christians were a Rome, considered a sect of Judaism. They were a small percentage of the Jews, okay? And, and so, and, and here's why they stood out. They would not worship the emperor. So they were actually called atheists. Isn't that ironic? Christians who worship the one true God are called atheists because they don't worship the divine emperors of the past. And then eventually the emperors started saying, I'm divine now. And so it's like, worship me now. And so there's all these temples all over the Roman Empire built to these different emperors because they wanted to think they were divine. And that actually ripples through Western civilization. If you look, kings all kind of thought, I'm I'm at least empowered and, and, and authorized by divinity to be something that no one else is. And of course, it got abused. Okay? But, but here, so, so then he says, if you were insulted. So um, if you were insulted because of the name of Christ. So there's the, see the connection. These are folks that are being insulted. They're being persecuted. They're being misunderstood. They're being slandered. They're being mistreated because they're Christians, because they're following a man who died and they say is alive again. And they live like that's actually true and that it's life-changing and they can't stop talking about it. That's what he's talking about, people like that, okay? So maybe this idea of being insulted for your name being in Christ is foreign to you because you've never talked about it. For whatever reason, I'm afraid, I don't know what to say, I'm a new Christian, whatever. I, I don't know, I'm not condemning you, I'm just saying you may not be able to relate to what the Christians were in that day going through, but most of them were so convinced that a man rose from the dead that they couldn't stop talking about it. 
because they realized the implications were, I'm going to live forever because I trust in him. Boom. Wow. Hello. We don't talk like that around here, do we? Do people at work even know that you're a Christian? Because we have this thing in our culture now. It's like you, got, you can be as religious as you want. Just keep it inside the walls of your house of worship. Just don't bring it to work. And we're kind of wanting to be careful because we don't want to lose our jobs. And so the Bible goes from our desk to the drawer or we don't talk about Jesus. We talk about faith because that's a little safer word because everybody has faith in something, right? Even an atheist believes there's no God, right? Have a chew on that one for lunch. But you see what I'm saying? And so we play it safe because we're afraid. And that's not a good reason. But it's... But, you know, we're all tempted to do that. And, and, you know, lose your job, that affects my family, it affects my kids. And, you know, we have all this rationale. But God's like, trust me. And he's going to say that again and again because I am your faithful creator. Trust me. We'll get back to that. So then he says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. Not what we would have written in that blank if it was there. But that was the other verses we saw too. Matthew 5, I'm going to read it again. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. That's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Here we go. Blessed are you, this is Jesus talking to, his, to the crowd. He's talking to his disciples too. And he, he is, this is the very beginning of what we would call his manifesto, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. Jesus says, blessed are you, when people insult you, again, it doesn't feel like that, but blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. There's the, the key thing. If they're doing that for any other reason, you're not blessed. But if they're doing it because you're not ashamed of Jesus, you're blessed. Rejoice and be glad, he says there's that joy word again, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in good company if that's happening to you. Not pleasant, but blessed. And he keeps making that point and driving that nail to make that point. If you're insulted because of the name of Jesus, you are blessed. Why? For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Okay? So the Holy Spirit lives in in believers. Okay? You trust Christ, he moves in, okay? He pitches his tent in your heart. The Spirit of God lives in you and says, I'm not going anywhere. My job is to make sure you finish this, this job, this, this relationship, that it ends well for you into the narrow way where we end up in the, the best is yet to come, right? New heaven, new earth, okay? So Holy Spirit is there to get, and he brings God's glory. Now, what is God's glory? We use, they throw that around. It's like, what is glory? It just seems so, I can't get my hands on it. Glory is, God's glory is the visible, is God attributes visible. It's God, what God is like visible, okay? So what is God like? And, and how can you see that God is true? God is just because he is holy, righteous. God is love. And we're not talking about, I love pizza love. We're talking about, I died for you love. Uh, we're talking about God is um, almighty, all powerful, can do. God is able. 
God is good, all good, not just a little bit good, not just pretty good, okay? Um, God is good. He is omnibenevolent, all good. God is um, life. He is the source of life. He sustains life. This life, eternal life, God is life. You and I don't exist if it's not him breathing life into us. God is light, which is glory manifest. Okay, and, But imagine, so when Barney was sitting in the hospital and he sensed the presence of Jesus, he said, I didn't see Jesus, but man, it was like he was right here beside me. He, it was so almost tangible, and it was God and those and God's more than those things, right? I didn't even talk about his omniscience and his omnipresence and um, his immutability and all these other things. He is, he's all these things in, in infinite proportion and in purity. And so when, uh, so the glory of God is those things in a way that we can perceive at some level. So he says the reason that you and I are blessed when we're insulted for Christ's name is because the spirit of glory of God rests on you. It means he's on you, he's in you, he's working. And he's intentionally working in your life in such a way to bless you so that you can bless others. Not so that you can keep it. That song kept saying over and over at the end of the song so that we would share it with others. I don't remember how it said it, but it was so that we would take the love that we keep singing about and share it with others and not keep it to ourselves, okay? If we take love and just keep it, we're going to die. Okay, the picture in, the, in geography is the Dead Sea. Dead Sea, the elevation is 800 and, no, it's like 896 feet below sea level. And there's no outlet. So where's the water go? It evaporates. The Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee, which is teeming with life. The Bible likes to say that word teeming. We don't use that very often. It's full of fish and wildlife, and then it flows out of the Sea of Galilee. So it has an inflow and an outflow. It takes, and it's a conduit of the Jordan River. The Jordan River then flows further south, and it ends in the Dead Sea. It's called the Dead Sea because nothing lives in it. Why? Because it's just getting more and more and more salty as the water evaporates. It deposits a little, every water coming in, it has a little bit of salt. Well, it's been doing that for a long time. So nothing lives in it. If you and I take and only take and don't give, we're going to die. Okay? And that's what most of the world is doing. Because God's loving the whole world, but only a few are giving it back. What he, and he gave it to us to give because it's more blessed to give than receive. All right, I'm off. Let's get back. Um, then he says this, because have you ever heard this before, right? Somebody will start come talking about some things in their life that aren't going well, and they're talking, and, and you're hearing this, you're going, yeah, but if you hadn't have done that, then that might not have happened. It's like, and they're going, well, you know, Satan, he's just after me. And... Okay, that's a pet peeve of mine. Because you're thinking a little too much about yourself if you think Satan is singling you out. Because Satan can only be in one place at a time. He is, only omnipre he is not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. So if you think, out of all the people in the world, he's singling you out to annoy you today, you, you're not understanding how he operates. Okay, yes, he has a, a, a minion of demons, and they are doing their thing, but he's got bigger fish to fry. Probably, okay? 
So what I'm saying is sometimes we blame someone else for what we should be taking responsibility for. Now let me read the verse. The verse says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Now meddler doesn't seem like it fits in that list, right? Because most of the people he's writing aren't murderers or thieves. But obviously you don't want to suffer for those things because God's not going to bless you in that because you're sinning. But even if you're just meddling, and we say just meddling like it's not a big deal, and it depends on what you're doing, but meddlers, folks, it's kind of like, oh, you're just gossiping. (laughs) Okay, God calls that sin. And maybe the Christians in Galatia, maybe they were some meddlers there, and he's saying that's not an acceptable reason to suffer and think God's going to bless you for that. He's not. Okay? So he's going to come back to this, this idea that, oh, I'm not just talking about judging people who are far from me. I'm talking about those people who are my people who are sinning. Verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, again, he's doing this back and forth. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. This is the second do not I mentioned earlier, and I went to Luke 9, 26. So don't be surprised if you suffer, but rejoice instead. Don't be ashamed, and he's going to say, but instead, praise God, which was in one of the songs we sang, and I didn't tell him what to sing. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but instead, praise God, why? That you bear that name. Praise God that you bear the name Christian. I don't know if you've ever been in the situation where somebody called you a Christian, but the way they said it, it was like, oh, you're one of those Christians. You know what I'm talking about? They're saying it in such a way of disgust. It's like a word that they, they want to spit after they say it. That's the way they talk, That's what they called all the Christians back then. That's where the name came from. It was a name that was pulled out, and they go, it means Christ follower. It means follower of Christ or little Christ. It, and, and people were using it as a derogatory term. Christians actually called themselves people of the way. That was what they called themselves. And interesting that we don't call ourselves people of the way. We call ourselves Christians, right? Well, they, the Christians embraced the suffering by embracing the name. Do you hear that? They stepped into it instead of running from it. Okay, it's kind of happening today, and I can't chase this rabbit except to say the word evangelical is kind of in the same territory, okay, because it's been hijacked by politics and partisanship, and it's been mis, uh, it's misunderstood because the definition is different for politics, okay? We have a lot of people in our country being called evangelicals that aren't even Christians. You see what I'm saying? So without chasing that anymore, I I just want to say, look, Christians are having a genuine conversation over, should I keep calling myself an evangelical Christian, okay? And, and some say, nope, I don't, that word is useless now. And others will say, I don't want to lose it because it's a rich word. What does it mean? What does evangelical mean? It's the word evangel or evangelize. It means good news. The enemy wants us to quit talking about good news, doesn't he? What a great way to do it. Let's just trash the word and culture. Well, I see it as an opportunity Okay, when somebody's talking politics now and they start talking about evangelicals, I'm going to step right in there and go, is this a religious conversation? Because I am in. Let's talk about it. What does evangelical mean? Do you even know? Most people don't even know. And then they're misusing it because they're using it. You know what I'm saying? 
is going to be a term used derogatorily because of what it means politically. Okay? Not to mention what it means because of the reputation we earned before it became that, which is, oh, you're Christians, you're homophobic, and you're politically too active, and all you talk about is money, and all the list of things that people say they hate about Christians. And so what do we do? We cower and hide from those words. Well, and I did this. You've heard me say it. I'm a Christ follower because I like to make it very clear who I am. And I think there's a place for that, and I still do that. But I'm not running from those words because, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. I'm praising God that I bear that name because I understand what it means, and I'm willing to take the good with the bad because the bad doesn't last but this life and the good. All right. Then he says this, um, for it is time, and we don't want, to, we could just skip this verse. And it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. It's hitting pretty close to home. What do, who's God's household? Maybe that's somebody else, right? Because he didn't say Christian, but God's household to the temple. And the temple and the tabernacle where God basically said, this is where I'm coming down to be with my people. Okay? Um, God is on the mount. Moses goes up by himself because the people won't go with him. We read this. Some of you read this this morning. And because the people won't come up, God comes down. Okay? If you remember David Platt, uh, tells a story about talking to a Buddhist monk, and he says, um, I was talking to this Buddhist monk. It might have been a different kind of monk. I'm not quite sure. Any uh, Tibetan monk might have been one of those guys. He's out hiking in the middle of who knows where, sharing Jesus, and he's like, and the guy's like, the monk says to him, yep, all religions lead to God. He's at the top of the mountain, and all the religions come to him. And, and, and David's like, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's actually not correct because Christianity's not like any of that. See, in Christianity we understood that we can't climb the mountain. That God came down because we can't climb the mountain. And he literally did that. When he came into the tabernacle and then later it was the temple, he came down and dwelt among his people. He pitched his tent and all the tents of all the Israelites organized by tribe and some uh, symmetrical pattern that God designed, they literally, every time the pillar of fire moved and stopped, they set up the tabernacle and built the camps around the tabernacle. And then later in Jerusalem, the city is around the temple where he is in the midst of his people. Why? Because he wants to be with us. And God became flesh and dwelt among us. The word for dwelt is the same word for tabernacled. And God tabernacled with us. He wants to be in our midst. And, and, and then Jesus dies on the cross, and what happens? God rips the veil of the temple from the top down, like ripping a phone book that's 30 feet tall. He rips it from the top down to say... No more barriers. It's you and me, as close as you want to be. And he says, this temple is now obsolete. Temple 3.0 has just arrived, and he's in us. We, collectively, right now, are the temple of God, right here. Now, God's household, this is the bad news, right here. And the good news, right? I mean, we are in this together, and yet he's saying judgment begins with the household of God. What's he saying? We know the world is under God's judgment, but household of God is first up. We're the ones who stand before God first because we should know better. 
than to sin against a holy good God, shouldn't we? And so maybe when we are tempted to point out to the world and tell the world how bad they are, maybe we ought to reflect on our condition, and maybe that will humble us long enough to go, ah, maybe I don't need to yell at them. Maybe it's not my job to judge them. There's nothing wrong with critiquing culture. There's nothing wrong with creating culture that is opposite what we see in the culture, having conversations about it. But when we start wagging our fingers and yelling at them like they are sinners going to hell and we're the judge, that's not it. That's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to go into that world and love them towards Jesus. To do it from a position of cultural weakness and not power which is what we see a lot of Christians trying to do today. Maybe even you're all for that. I don't see Jesus doing that. I don't see Jesus ever stepping into a position of power in the world. Never. In fact, that's why he was getting criticized, because the crowds wanted him to become king. And he said, he didn't say it to them, but he knew, I already am king. This is not my time to, to wield that power. It's not for now. There's a time coming when that will be appropriate. So he gets into this and he says, it is time for the judgment for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it is begins with us, which should cause us to tremble, not that our salvation is in jeopardy, but that our, um, our fellowship with him, like it could be, is in jeopardy. Okay? It's kind of like if you're married, you're married. And, and it should be that way. We're married. No, um, we're not arguing about that. We are married, and that's the relationship we have, and we don't just wear the rings for show. It's because this is for keeps, as long as we both shall live. But we're not always clicking, you know what I mean? We're not always in fellowship. Okay? All right, that, but we're still married, and we're going to get through this because we're not going to give up. You see it? Okay, And so he's saying, uh, if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now he's talking about people that don't know the Lord yet. Now he's talking about people who are under the judgment and wrath of God, which is most of humanity. And, and how do we know who they are? They're the ones who do not obey the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the good news. What's the good news? Well, I got to tell you the bad news because the bad news is that we're all born sinners, and that's why we sin, and our sin separates us from our Creator, and therefore He has to, being a holy God, judge that, punish that, and the wages of sin is death. And death in the Bible in the New Testament is hell. It's an eternal separation from God in a place of eternal torment. Does not sound like good news at all. That's bad news. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be a part of that, and I don't want anybody else to be a part of that. So what's the good news? The good news is there's a way out. The good news is you don't have to stay there. That God has made a way for humanity to be reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus died to take the punishment for all of humanity so that we wouldn't have to. But the only folks that get it are the ones that actually believe that's true. That's it. Belief. That leads to repentance. Okay, and what is repentance? It's saying, I'm going to stop walking down this way that is destructive and, and, and leaves God out. I'm going to turn and walk this way. It's just the way that my creator is leading me through his son, Jesus Christ. That makes me a household, part of the household of God. If it, is, if it begins with us, what is the outcome? He's saying, you may think it's bad that I'm judging the household of God, which means I'm disciplining the household of God, but I am judging the rest. And that means their punishment is 
is, is forever. Your discipline is designed to actually make you more like Christ. So you might have heard in scripture, you might have heard the phrase refiner's fire, where God is using fire to refine. It's imagery, right? And the idea is this. So if you, let's say you are a jeweler and you work with precious metals like gold and silver and platinum, and let's say you have some gold and the gold is 10 karat gold and you want it to be 14 karat gold, 20 karat, I don't know what the round numbers are, but the next level, how would you get it there? you would heat it up so high that it would liquefy, okay? And because it's precious, heavy metals, that the heavy gold stays below what bubbles to the top, which is the imperfections, the impurities that are mixed in the gold, okay? And those lighter things can be skimmed right off the top. And now you have a purer gold than you had before. Now that takes heat, lots of heat. And so the imagery is God is saying, I'm going to heat things up for you. Didn't Peter say it? Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal, the suffering, the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, refine you, in some cases discipline you, as though something strange were happening to you because you're his kids. I'm his, we're his kids, and his kids... We need discipline, just like our children growing up need our discipline. And if you're a loving parent, you do discipline them so that they don't get disciplined later by the world when the consequences are so much greater. They learn discipline through being disciplined, punished. But they're still your kids. And so that's the way he treats us. I'm disciplining you as my children because I love you. The world I have to judge because they won't receive me as their father. So I have to judge them. I have to give them what they want, which is away from me, their creator, their faithful creator. And that's why it should, it should, it should move us with compassion to care about that instead of sitting over here smug as if we got our act together because we don't. We just, by God's grace, are here. Okay? So let's realize that there was mercy required for us to be here. Let's turn that, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be... Blessed are those who receive mercy, for they will be merciful. I think that's right. Then he says, um, then he doubles down on this, this language in verse 18. He says, and it is hard for the righteous to be saved. Okay? It is hard to believe some of this stuff, right? I mean, come on. If it's easy, one, you're, you've been in the church a long time, and two, you've quit thinking. Or you have great faith, okay? Uh, maybe it's a mix. Because there's some things in here that's not hard for me to believe anymore. I'm just, res- I've just, I'm okay. But part, partly that's because I maybe haven't been tested to where that has really been challenged. You know, I can still remember having a conversation with a fella. Um, this was years ago, and I was sitting in Chick-fil-A, and this guy would clean the windows, okay? He was one of the window washers at Chick-fil-A. His name was Alex. And Alex was, I didn't know this, Alex was a Jehovah's Witness. But Alex was very kind and respectful to me, and he always talked to me because he'd see me there with my Bible studying, and he would make comment about it, and we got to talking. And, and, you know, I'm always looking for a conversation about Jesus, so I obviously kept talking to him, and eventually we sat down and started talking, and I learned, he's a JW, okay? Oh, I know that's a cult, that's a false religion. Why? Because they don't believe that Jesus is who the Bible teaches he is. Okay? And they would disagree with me on that statement. 
but they don't believe that Jesus is God in the Trinity, the triune God. That they would not disagree with me on. Okay, and so, but you learn that as you get into the conversation, you talk to, and for the first, and this is the first Jehovah's Witness I'd ever had a conversation with that wasn't weird, that, and I don't mean disrespect, but they just, Christians are weird too, some, okay, hello, we're in the weird club, club weird. Um, he seemed, he was young, that was first, unique, he was articulate, that was unusual, he knew his Bible, most Jehovah's Witnesses know their Bible, um, they just don't know the right Bible, okay, or they don't know some parts that they need to know, and he was willing to sit down and talk to me like a normal person, so that got my attention, and he starts telling me why the Trinity isn't real, using scripture, and I'm like, hello, and so I start asking myself the question, because we have to have the courage to do this. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. And so what am I going to do with that? And so I met with him for hours at a time, listening and talking, because you know I can't just listen. And, and, we, and, and, and it challenged me to really think, am I convinced that the Bible teaches that that Jesus is God. That's really what matters to me in that whole Trinity thing. I'm not saying the Trinity is not important. I'm saying if you say the Trinity isn't real, then you're saying Jesus isn't God, and I can't get past that. And so I kept going back to that. And, and eventually I learned that the book of John answers almost every question you can have about the Trinity. The book of John is gold. And so I kept taking him back to that, and, and I'd say, explain why you think that based on this verse. Okay, explain it based on this verse. And eventually he moved to Michigan. I'm just, it's just a coincidence. It's, I'm sure it's just a coincidence. My point in sharing that is God let me, he tested me in that area. Okay. He, did I, did I, was I confident in the Trinity? Yeah, I was pretty confident in the Trinity. Well, now I'm very confident. Why? Because I've spent time being challenged and I've had to go back here. Okay, there are other things that you could challenge me on that I would go, yeah, I'm really not comfortable with that yet. Okay, it's okay. It's a journey. It's not where you are, it's where you're heading. And are you heading towards Christ down the narrow way or are you heading somewhere else? That's what matters. And he's saying it's hard for the righteous to be saved. And it's hard for the righteous to continue to walk in that salvation. It's not easy. It takes effort, which is why we say, read your Bible Pray your Bible. Immerse yourself in this truth because the world is bombarding you with a different... It, you are being discipled. The question is who? Is NPR discipling you? Is Clay and Buck discipling you? You know what I'm saying? Who's discipling you? Who are you spending time listening to more than this? That's who's discipling you. Okay. Hopefully, if you're, if you're a teenager, your parents are still discipling you. Hopefully, you're listening. I know teenagers are like, okay, I'm done with them at age 10. You'll, you'll tune back in around age 26. It is hard for the righteous to be saved. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And we know that the wages of sin is death. Okay? Jesus talked a lot about hell, more about hell than heaven. So we can't just go, yeah, that's some fictional, no, it's not a myth. And then he gives us this last verse, and you're like, and his suffering is about to end. The last verse that summarizes all of it, okay? So the first point was don't be surprised, instead be, rejoice. The second point was don't be ashamed, instead praise God. And this last one is do this, 
Entrust yourself to God. I think some translations say commit. It should be, okay, um, commit your limits. Okay, so let me read it. Um, So then, in light of these verses, starting in verse 12, those who suffer according to God's will, nobody suffers that God doesn't permit or cause. So if you're really, really mad about your suffering, you have conversations with him, okay? Because he's sovereign. That's what it means when it says he's creator. So those who suffer according to God's will should, this is what you should do, according to Peter, you should commit yourself, commit themselves to their faithful creator, okay? Commit in trust. I like that word a little bit better, in trust. I've used this many, many times because it's the best picture I know. If I'm entrusting this, to hold me up, I'm going to sit on it. I'm going to put my full weight, and when I'm fully on it, I'm resting on it. It means I'm counting on it to hold me up. I'm entrusting it with my full weight, because it'd be really embarrassing and think about right now. Yeah, I'd be all over the state, right? And life is a whole lot higher stakes than that, right? And then he says this, continue to do good. Commit yourself to your faithful creator. Creator implies sovereignty. And continue to do good. In fact, evidence that you're entrusting yourself to him is that you are continuing to do good. And that's what we do until the end. We talked about living in light of the end. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? Continue to do good. Continue to do the good work of good works that God has called us to do. Right? Was it uh, Ephesians 2.10? For you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do, which means that each of you has a dry erase board in heaven that God's got all your list written on. And you're working that list, doing good. And he's keeping track, and he's loving you through it and empowering you through it and encouraging. I'll end with this. The word commit. The word commit um, is this is the picture. I want you to imagine that you live back in the days of Peter, first century. You're in your house. you got neighbors on each side. They're in their houses. It's pretty open air, okay? Hot climate, dry climate. We don't have screens on the windows. You can lock your door, but, it, you know, it's, it's not that hard if you really want to get in. I mean, thank goodness they dug through the roof to get in one house. You can dig through, but you've got a trip and you get to take this trip, and it's a long trip, and you've got all your life savings in that house because there aren't banks like we have today. You're like, what do I do with my life savings? I can't carry it. There's bandits on the road. I'm not safe to carry a bunch of money on the road. I'll lose my life savings. What am I going to do? You better know somebody that you can trust to hold that money while you're gone. And when you find that person, family or friend, you're going to entrust them with that money. You're going to entrust them with it. That's what he's saying here that we're to do with God. Entrust my suffering life to him, which is resting in him. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound appealing like, I wish I could do that? You can do that. You can because he will. When you meet him, he will come to you. I don't know what your situation is right now. I'm sure you're going and dealing with some hard things, right? 
God has a way to get you through those things. He has a way, and he wants to do it. He is a good God. He only wants to do what is good. And he wants to do it in you so that he can do it through you. So you'll be like the Sea of Galilee instead of the Dead Sea. Okay? So don't just run to God when you need help, and then when I get through the help, I don't need God anymore. No, no, no. You go to God so that he can get you to a place where you can be the help someone else needs. That's the church. That's who we're called to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, from you working in us through your Holy Spirit who lives in us, your people. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us believe what you say is true about how to deal with suffering in these times until the end. That you would give us courage to change because that's what most of us need to do right now. You're already tapping us on our heart, telling us what we already knew or certainly something we need to know, something in our life that needs to change. But the hard question is, how? what are we going to do about it? And so, Lord, I pray for the courage that each person needs, including myself, to change, to be changed by the gospel, the good news that you are who you say you are and that you're going to do all you've promised to do. In Jesus' name we pray.